Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast about how biology is technology. I'm Lauren Richardson, PhD, scientist, and former journal editor. And this episode is a journal club, meaning that our conversation centers around a recently published article from the scientific literature, its findings, implications, and the new opportunities it presents. And today, we're talking about using plant genetics to understand how plants have adapted to natural climate change as a way of preparing for man-made climate change. I'm joined by Thomas Younger, Associate Professor at the University of Texas in Austin and co-senior author of the recent article, Genomic Mechanisms of Climate Adaptation in Polyploid Bioenergy Switchgrass, published in Nature. We discuss how studying native plants, like switchgrass, can inform crop improvement strategies, the important role of switchgrass as a possible future source of biofuels, how advances in sequencing technology have unlocked the secrets hidden in plant genomes, and more. We're interested in plant evolution. And so plants are evolving over time. As climate has changed over the past, they're responding to that climate change through a variety of different evolutionary processes. And as we look to the future, of course, everyone is concerned about the impacts of climate change on crop plants. And so kind of an emerging idea in the field is understanding how natural plant populations have evolved to cope with stresses and climate change might be very informative of how we can prepare and further domesticate or breed crops for the future. So a really great example might be thinking specifically about our switchgrass system. Mm-hmm. It was native to North America, spanning all the way from you know, central Mexico and north into Canada. Uh, north America has actually had a very dynamic climate history with glacial retreats and expansions and Switchgrass populations, you know, evolved and migrated across their range based on those changes. So if we can try to find genes or traits or mechanisms of how plants have evolved to this sort of climate challenge in the past, that might inform genes and traits and mechanisms that we could potentially use for for crops. 
So switchgrass has already adapted to a wide range of different environments. Central Mexico doesn't look anything like Canada. So in its genome, there are already hints as to how a plant can exist and survive in such diverse ecosystems. So that makes it a really great system to work on for this study. But switchgrass also has some really cool potential uses in kind of our human-made ecosystems. So tell me about what other role switchgrass might be playing in our future worlds. In the 70s and 80s, the Department of Energy became very interested in perennial grasses as a potential source for biofuels. And they honed in on switchgrass as being a really nice system, widely adaptable, high-performing grass that could handle growth on really marginal lands and be very productive with few inputs. And so one, one idea is that we can use plants to fix carbon as sugars and potentially use that as an energy source. The simplest way is you can burn it and that generates energy. You can also um, use a variety of different chemical engineering approaches to basically convert those sugars into liquid fuels. And one really important idea is that the carbon that plants are fixing uh, is coming out of the atmosphere currently. And if we burn it and release it, in theory, could be neutral with respect to carbon. When we burn fossil fuels, uh, effectively, we're, we're burning carbon uh, that plants fixed millions of years ago, right? And that's adding carbon into the current budget of carbon in the atmosphere. But there's been some really nice studies to suggest that you can have a scenario that's both energetically and economically viable for converting switchgrass into a fuel. And I think one of the important roles that biofuels might play is for sort of dense liquid fuel sources. And so it's hard to imagine how maritime shipping, trucking, air flight, those sorts of components of our societies are going to be facilitated by batteries in the near future. And so, you know, is there a source of a liquid fuel that would be carbon neutral or at least less carbon intensive? And I think biofuels will play a role in that niche. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're not likely to see solar powered planes anytime soon. So it's, you need a one for one kind of replacement for fossil fuel derived liquid fuel. Yeah. And, and the challenge, of course, is that there's not an economy, really, while there's fossil fuels to be burned. And so, you know, it's great that DOE has been investing in building a community and resources and research that will help prepare us when it might be economically viable and needed. So switchgrass has these great features to it. It has this climate adaptability it has important roles in the natural ecosystems and then possibly has this really important role in the future for being a, a source of biofuel. So what is the key question that you're asking about switchgrass in this paper? The main goal was to describe the evolutionary history and the molecular mechanisms with which it's evolved this amazing range and adaptability. We're really asking very basic questions about the biology of this native plant. And the, you know, the implications of that, they sort of set the groundwork for any future efforts at breeding, discovering genes that might be important in various traits for helping to, to frame, you know, what are the really important environmental gradients 
or stress factors that we need to consider if we're really going to try to domesticate the species and use it in a widespread way. So I would like to get into some of the methods and results of your paper. And I'd like to start from this fact of, or maybe my interpretation of the fact that plant genetics is really hard, like famously hard. So what are some of the challenges of studying plant genomes and how did you overcome them in the work of this article? Plant genomes are notoriously difficult to work with. Plants are often have large genomes. They're often um, highly repetitive. A very, very, very common feature of plants is polyploidy. Polyploidy is basically a doubling of genomes, and that's basically the case in switchgrass. It's an allopolyploid with two subgenomes. These two subgenomes, they differ, but they don't differ an enormous amount. And so when we try to sequence and assemble the genome, it's very, very challenging. It's sort of like taking two puzzles that are very, very similar it might be easy to assemble each puzzle by themselves, but now let's dump all those puzzle pieces together in one batch, and it'd be very, very difficult to put those puzzles together correctly. And so we were really involved with the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute and collaborators at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology in Huntsville in trying to develop genomic resources and genome assemblies of switchgrass for over a decade. And the process has been kind of a long slog and it's really been impacted by technology developments where as our sequencing becomes um, higher throughput, longer reads, that's really facilitated the ability to assemble the unique pieces of the genome, and in particular, to distinguish the two subgenomes. The issue of polyploidy is really fascinating to me. You know, I come from the side of science studying yeast, which has a small genome, or humans, which has a much larger genome, but it still only has got that one genome. You know, now when you're, you're dealing with plants, you're dealing with multiple genomes within a single cell that are inherited at different rates, that mutate at different rates, that are being, you know, the genes are being expressed off of the different genomes in different ways. And that always just seemed so additionally complex. And I love your your uh, example of the puzzle pieces being mixed together. And the way I think about that in terms of like technology, these longer reads is kind of like getting some of those puzzle pieces together in the box. So the puzzle pieces are now bigger. So it's easier to see how they fit together as opposed to having lots of little tiny puzzle pieces. That's really hard to see where they connect. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So we discussed these challenges of sequencing one plant genome, but in this paper, you sequence several hundred individuals from different regions with different climate patterns. What did you learn about the switchgrass genome and its evolution by comparing these different genomes? So our approach basically was to collect lots of natural individuals of switchgrass. We drove around the U.S., visited lots of prairies and nature preserves and roadside ditches and could grab plants. And we would bring them back to Austin, Texas. And one of the the real neat things about switchgrass is you can clonally propagate it. So we can basically horticulturally chop it into little pieces and regenerate new plants from those cuttings. And so our project sort of centers on making many, many copies of these individuals. 
And then we resequence their genomes and that DNA sequence can help us understand um, the ancestry and genetic relatedness of the individual plants that we collected and also can help us to infer something about their evolutionary history, their demography, how their populations have changed in size or moved geographically over time. And so it really laid a groundwork for you know, making some arguments about the history of switchgrass in North America. So how do you connect that to the genetic diversity of the plants? You know, how do you figure out the connection between the, the phenotype and the genotype and how that interacts with climate? So our core experimental design is, is based on taking plant material and planting it at many locations. And we're fortunate because we can clonally propagate switchgrass. Effectively, we're doing twin studies where we can have exactly genetically identical individuals grown at many, many locations. And that, that experiment lets us ask the really classic question about nature and nurture, right? How important are the genes? How important is the environment? How important is the genetic variation and how it interacts with the environment on any trait that we measure? And what's really beautiful now is that we have these genomic tools and techniques that let us take that kind of classic experiment and actually identify the pieces of the genome that are underlying those differences and which genes are interacting with the environment to affect plant growth. So you, you had all these samples of switchgrass from all these different locations across Northern America. You're able to basically clone them. So instead of just one sample from Utah, you now have five different versions. And now you can see how that grows in Utah. You can see how that grows in Minnesota. You can see how that grows in Canada and actually do the experiment with genetically identical clones in different climates and see how they grow and then connect that to their genetics. Yeah, and the fundamental analysis that we report in the paper is called a genome-wide association study. And that's basically based on taking polymorphisms that we've detected in the genome and asking whether they're associated with particular responses and phenotypes that we've measured. And that's a, a genetic mapping approach that's very analogous to how we do most human genome mapping endeavors. So you have mapped these genetic loci that are associated with these traits. So how do you think about harnessing and operationalizing this information? Um, I think there are two really you know, direct next steps that come out of our study. One of them is really trying to identify genes and understand their function. So our experiments in association study, and associations aren't causation. And so clearly, this is a great way to rank the genome and say, these are the pieces of the genome that we think matter based on inference from evolutionary biology and association. But we really would like to go and, and do manipulations and test different candidate genes. And those are really great targets for modifying and trying to improve switchgrass using genetic engineering. And then a, a second sort of approach is really a traditional breeding approach, but using molecular markers and natural variation. So we can take our data set and we can find the top lines, which, which lines performed best across the most locations. And those are great parents to use in crosses. And we can leverage the molecular markers associated with those plants to do a better job making those crosses and more rapidly um, cycling and breeding plants. And I think the framework of our experiment also lets us be 
kind of creative and flexible in how we might develop those improvement programs. So for example, on the one hand, it's, it's really a desire to create broadly adapted generalists that we could plant in many locations. That's very convenient and can facilitate large plantings of the type of scale we would want to do for biofuels. Our experimental design also helps us look at specialists and find plants that might perform really well in specific environments or under specific pressures. And so it's a great catalog of resources and next steps for studying switchgrass. What would you say the pros and cons of molecular breeding versus doing genome editing are? Does, does one have you know inherent benefits over the other? I think it really depends on what your target might be for breeding. Many of the traits that we've been studying are really classic quantitative traits. They're affected by hundreds and hundreds of genes, a very small effect, sort of similar to thinking of height in humans or you know, cancer susceptibility where there are many, many, many factors that can affect that trait. Those traits are really hard to manipulate or modify using genetic engineering. On the other hand, there might be very, you know, specific traits that are controlled by simple genetics. Um, we've been studying disease resistance. Rust fungal pathogens are very, very important in switchgrass, and there are clearly some resistance factors that have a remarkable effect on, on susceptibility or resistance. And you might be able to go in and genetically modify those and greatly improve plant performance. And so I, I think, you know, holistically in the future, we'll use every possible route to improve plants and we should pick and choose them based on the, the goals. The uh, answer in science is always both. Yes. What one challenge with switchgrass, I will say, is that it's native and it's an outcrosser. And so there's always a concern of escape of a gene. If we were to modify switchgrass using a transgenic technique, um, we would have to secondarily come up with a way of keeping that plant from outcrossing so that that modified gene wouldn't escape and get into native switchgrass populations. And there are researchers working on that. I think it's a very tractable thing in the future. Yeah, that's a, that's a really important point. Which kind of leads me to my next question, which is, does this study have implications for species beyond switchgrass or for studying other complicated plant genomes? Well, most of our progress in plant genomics comes from studying annual crop plants. And so this is one of the first really nice perennial plant genomes and perennial plant systems. And perenniality itself is a really fascinating trait in plants. And by perennial, I mean that the plant grows through multiple growing seasons and multiple bouts of reproduction. Most of our crops are grasses. They're just annuals, so wheat and corn and rice. And there's an interest in trying to modify or breed those crop plants to be perennials. There are many, many potential benefits if we could make perennial corn, for example you tend to develop a very deep, robust rooting system, and that actually generally gives vigor to plants. Perennial plants are usually better at foraging for nutrients. They also build soil. And so I also, I think in the long run, we're going to learn some really interesting things about perennial grasses in this system that to me, that's a very exciting direction for, for some of our future work. 
building on this idea of what we want to do in the future to offset climate change, what we talked about in the paper was the plant response to natural climate change. But there's something different about man-made climate change in that it's happening so fast. Is there something about man-made climate change that is that is really distinct and that you know we won't be able to infer based on looking at past changes to climate? Or do you think that those are still an apples to apples comparison? That's a tough question, to be honest. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, we know something about past climate and we try to make projections about what's going to happen to climate in the future. And those projections are variable and very regional uh, and very context dependent. So if we think about switchgrass, you know, what is switchgrass like? You know, switchgrass is very happy in hot temperatures with lots of water. Well, a lot of the Midwest might experience just that climate. So climate change might not be a bad thing for switchgrass. The range of climates that switchgrass experience, it's just spatially, are, you know, in the envelope of the climate change that we might expect to see in our study uh, we have pictures of, you know, people standing around in flip-flops and shorts in South Texas working, collecting data from plants while it's still under snow, right, in the north. Mm -hmm. um, and so in a way, our experiment kind of exchanges space for time. I like that exchanging space for time. That's a great way to think of it. So I would just like to end with, you know, kind of the high level thoughts on the new opportunities that this work provides and really like where it sits in the context of, you know, what we know and where, where the field is going and where you want to go with this. In terms of our own work, you know, I think it's a really exciting time, right? So this, this project has spanned over a decade and it's been this really, for me, a really satisfying, fun community building effort. We've gone out and collected all this diversity. We've shared it with many different researchers. We've planted it at all these locations it's really a, a collaborative network that we've developed with people with lots of different expertise. And now that we've built this resource, you know, we continue to study it. The gardens are still there. We're measuring traits this year and every year is different. So this year, a couple of weeks ago, right? We just had this crazy winter storm in Austin, Texas. And so every site year combination is kind of a new environment that these clonal replicates of plants have experienced and they afford new, new ways that we can study them and try to understand their biology. And like one of the, the features that I really love about it is we're really letting the plants tell us what matters. We go to the field and we keep our eyes open and try to watch their natural history. We've also been realizing and sort of embracing the idea that these plants, they don't exist in isolation. They actually have evolved relationships with microbes. And in particular, they have close affinity for mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria in their roots. And so we've started to study those plant microbe associations. I think it'll be a fun, a fun uh, future with our switchgrass project. A lot of really important questions still to ask. Thomas, thank you for joining me on Journal Club today. I really enjoyed learning about your research. It was great. Thanks. And that's it for BioEats World this week. BioEats World is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Lauren Richardson. 
with the help of the A16Z bio team, Pavel Rivera and Seven Morris, and is part of the A16Z podcast network, which you can read more about at a16z.com forward slash pod network. If you've got questions about this episode or want to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld, that's one word, at a16z.com. And for more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.